This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Madam Speaker, rural Canadians have been waiting years for accessible, affordable and reliable internet service. Last week, the Liberal appointed chair of the CRTC, who has previous ties to big telecom companies, slashed hopes with a reversal of the Commission's previous decision on wholesale access rates. My constituents are tired of this backroom lobbying by large telecom countries. What does the Liberal government consistently refuse to stand up for Canadian consumers, and why has it abandoned its election platform commitment to affordable internet services? Honourable Parliamentary Secretary. Madam Speaker, it's a real pleasure to receive the question from the member. And I would say we're standing up, uh, Madam Speaker, and I think it's uh, we share the same goal with the member, and I think all the members of this House around affordability, competition, innovation. And that's why the member will know that our government has been relentless in promoting competition to lower prices while working to improve the quality and increase the coverage of telecom services in Canada. We are ensuring that Canadians pay affordable prices for reliable internet services, regardless of their postal code. We'll keep on working with service providers. The Canadian government may claim that it has been relentless in promoting competition to lower prices for internet services, but that message may not have reached the CRTC, which recently stunned the industry and Canadians by reversing a pricing decision on wholesale broadband. Now, that may sound arcane, but the reverberations from the decision were instant, with some calling for CRTC Chair Ian Scott to resign or be fired. When Bill C-10 and the prospect of increased CRTC powers are added to the mix, the concerns with the Commission are clearly mounting. Conrad von Finkenstein is a former chair of the CRTC who led the Commission during a similarly contentious time during the debates over net neutrality. He has since been outspoken on communications policy issues, including arguing that Bill C-10 should be scrapped and rewritten. He joins me on the podcast to talk about the CRTC, the recent decisions, and what he thinks is a better approach to internet regulation. Conrad, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Okay, it's a real pleasure. You know, you've had, as you well know, a remarkable career, a judge, a CRTC chair, competition commissioner, trade negotiator. You know, before we get into the substance of the CRTC and hopefully talk a little bit about Bill C-10, can you describe what brought you to the CRTC? My recollection is you moved from the bench as a judge to the CRTC, which is a pretty unusual move. Yeah, as you mentioned, I had a wonderful career in the government of Canada and uh, Issues that I dealt with, such as privatization of Canada and the Havilland, you know, uh, free trade negotiation, it was commissioner of competition and judge of the federal court. And I really enjoyed dealing with public issue and the interface between public policy and economics. And I found as a judge, while it was intellectually extremely challenging and it was, it was a great job. And of course, you don't have to worry about resources or anything like that. I felt it didn't play to my strengths. My strengths is really work dealing with ideas, dealing with people, bring, organizing them, getting them to buy in and getting them to commit and to implement public policies. And uh, as a judge, I felt I was basically by myself dealing with issue on my own and deciding very precise, limited issues, but I really couldn't have any public policy impact. 
And so when the opportunity came along to become chairman of the CRTC, I resigned and I accepted it. And had five, five wonderful years as chairman of the CRTC. Okay, that's good to hear. Let's talk a little bit about those those five years. You were chair from 2007 until 2012. And net neutrality was certainly one of the most notable issues that I recall that arose during your tender uh, tenure, rather, can can you talk a bit about uh, how that issue unfolded at the CRTC? One that, of course, it's striking that it remains a, a major topic of discussion and debate still today. Yeah, it's interesting. It's the one decision I made at the CRTC, which was universally applauded by everybody: academics, consumers, uh, producers, uh, <coughs> communicators, etc. It really came up because peer-to-peer was becoming was being used by. Uh, games uh, mostly, and was blocking the internet. I was using up so much space that the the uh, <clears throat> internet service providers felt they had to block it because it was taking up too much space. And there were complaints to the CRTC, and we looked into it. And of course, as you know, the communications uh, industry, those are common, common carriers, and they're supposed to carry anything and not interfere with the contact. But if you block something or slow it down, then you actually are. And they argued that we need to do this in order to make sure that a small minority doesn't use up all the space and therefore to the uh, disincentive or disbenefit of other users. And so we felt that this was really an issue that should be held, dealt with head on. The term net neutrality wasn't, was just coming into force at that point in time. We actually talked, uh, called it internet traffic management policy, but same thing. And we basically said, yes, this is an issue. You can do certain blocking, but if you do it, you have to tell your users and you have to explain why it is and it has to be basically driven in order to preserve the integrity of the network and in order to preserve equal access for all. And if that requires you to block or slow down certain ones, you can do it but you have to have good notice, it has to be fully transparent. And by the way, if you abuse it, then we will come after you and uh, penalize you, and this is what we will do. And so we laid it out that way of saying, we understand there's a problem, yes, you may do it, but you have to do it transparently, and you do have to do it as little as policy, and you have to advise people, and uh, you cannot abuse this. So if you want to do anything more, then you need to apply to us and get absolute uh, authority to do that. And the decision was basically hailed by everybody as being the right way. And I think it has its effect. It actually enforced net neutrality, and net neutrality has not been an issue in Canada. And to my knowledge, several other jurisdictions have emulated our policy. Yeah, no, the ITMP certainly stand out as, a, as an approach that a lot of people uh, did applaud, as I recall at the time. And, you know, there's been questions uh, along the way about enforcement and updating to different kinds of issues. But uh, certainly the, the foundation that was established in that decision was a really important one. You know, the CRTC finds itself now at the center of well, many controversial issues, I suppose. But uh, there's a couple that, that definitely come to mind. One is the, the recent wholesale broadband issue and its reversal on, on pricing with a decision quite recently that reversed where it was just a couple of years ago. And of course, discussions about the role that the commission will play with respect to Bill C-10, which brings potentially the CRTC into the world of regulating user-generated content through discoverability requirements. You know, I thought, why don't we start with the, the wholesale broadband pricing issue? 
you know, I suppose the, the reaction from many in the sector in the immediate aftermath of that decision might be best described as disbelief. I think many were truly stunned that the, the commission had, had literally backtracked from where it was just a couple of years ago. You know, from your perspective, how how does the CRTC reach the point where it reverses a decision that was made, as I say, only two years earlier uh, and identify, I believe, a dozen errors as part of the analysis? Well, like everybody else, I was stunned by this decision. I just cannot believe the Commission would reverse itself after two years on so many issues and say in its decision that they made major errors. I mean, the original decision, which I thought was good, and uh, I actually wrote about it, I thought that the uh, retroactivity was probably not needed. But other than that, the whole idea that wholesale is necessary, should be regulated and should be regulated in such a way that there's a room for the for the beneficiaries, the purchase of wholesale, but also for the people who sell it, the, the big telecoms. And there's a, it's enough profit margin there to find a happy medium. And they came up with that for the basically 40% cut across the board. We look at it very broadly. And of course, we all know all hell broke loose. It was appealed to the CRTC, we went uh, to the F federal court. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. There was a, a uh, application to cabinet and there was an application to the CRTC to review and bury. And cabinet gave this very strange. They didn't review and bury, but on the other hand, they hinted very broadly that they thought maybe this was a disincentive to investment the CRTC should look at it again without telling them what to do, but they basically suggested that uh, in their view there was something, uh, an issue there of a, a disincentive to investments. Yeah, As no, that's know, the court cases went nowhere. And then the CRTC finishes review and very, they take forever and a day, and they basically go all the way back and say everything we did in the last two and a half years is wrong. And we'll stay with what we originally had. I mean, I don't understand it. There was a public process. You felt and you came to these conclusions. You had studies, you had your own people, analyzers, etc. And then you walk back and say it was all wrong. On what basis? And I mean, I read the decision. And frankly, I cannot find out what it is actually that was so wrong. And one the more what, I, what kind of message are you sending to your own staff by, by, by saying then, hey, hey, everything you did on the last two and a half years in analyzing it and making recommendations to us was wrong and, and upon reviewing it a second time, we're throwing it all out? I mean, this is no way to regulate. And then to, to do this right now in the middle of COVID with interconnection and access to, uh, to the internet is such a big issue. Now, we all know that the small companies do concentrate on underused areas. So why on earth you would deprive them of a reduced price which you had held out as being the correct price and now take back two years later? I mean, I'm just as stunned as everybody else. I just do not understand what the CRTC was trying to achieve, why they did it. And uh, frankly, all they have done is totally undermine their own credibility. Yeah, no, I think that that view has certainly been shared by, by some of the some many of the stakeholders who are directly involved in the process. They've clearly been very angry. We've seen calls even for Ian Scott to resign or be fired. 
Others have expressed concern about undue influence, either by the government or by obviously some of the large telecom companies that are the beneficiaries of this decision. You know, I'm curious, what was your experience? The, the official line from the CRTC is always that the decisions are based solely on the public record. You know, what role, if any, do you think that outside forces or views from the government uh, influence the decision-making process? Look, when you are in that position and you make decisions, you'd have to have political antenna. You have to understand what's going on and that you'd, how your decisions will be seen both by the industry and by government. And obviously you're trying to be, make sure that you're not an outlier, that you've hit uh, decisions that make sense, are fair, and also are politically acceptable, if, if grudgingly, and also acceptable by the industry, if, if, even if grudgingly. Essentially, when you regulate, you're trying to make everybody equally unhappy. Nobody, you can, you will never come down on one side wholly or the other. You're trying to find a, 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 an acceptable compromise. And of course, you have to keep in mind, you need a healthy industry. If you can't have, don't have a healthy industry, then all your regulations will be for naught. On the other hand, you, you, a healthy industry is not your only goal. Your other goal is to make sure that consumers get the maximum benefit. And in this case, obviously, they also make sure that you don't put any breaks in, into to the innovations, uh, which is all uh, driven by the Internet. On this, in this issue, uh, so what do you do here? You listen to all the inputs. It's a, it's a, it's a public record. You look to the public record, and that's your, uh, your main source. You also have some internal studies, and then you sort of, in your head, you uh, put all that together and filter it out, and then to, at, on the outset, there are the thing. How will this play politically? How will this play in the industry? How will this play on the industry? And you come up to a fair decision. That's how it's done. It's you can't ignore it. On the other hand, what's the key thing is the public record and the submission and the evidence, and then you do some attenuation on the margin because of the other influences that I mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, the, the, the notion of having a political antenna and getting a sense of where the government stands at and, and that need to at least factor that in in some capacity. Uh, I'm wondering about the effect that that lobbying from different companies have. I, I recall when I was when I was active engaging the public on issues related to website blocking, you know, some of the documents that came out, I think, obtained through access to information revealed that, you know, Bell, which was a large proponent of that process had you know ensured that they had, were meeting with commissioners meeting with staff well ad, well in advance of, of this being made available to the public you know it, what's your what's your take on the, on the impact that those kinds of meetings can have i know some commissioners for example or some chairs jean pierre blay really made it a practice not to have those kind of meetings um, because at a minimum the perception of of what they mean what, what what's your view from from your experience on what impact if any those have I think you want to have an open door. You want to have people to come in and tell you what their concerns are and what their aspirations. So I just think there's nothing wrong with lobbying. It should be transparent. It should be open, etc. But you have to be very careful that lobbying doesn't amount to intellectual co-option, that you do are lobbied so much. And you always hear that one point that you do, that you basically, without even consciously knowing it, you absorb it and uh, adopt it as your own. So while the lobbying is fine, you also have to reach out and bring in people 
uh, and you have to should have as many public hearings as possible. I don't believe in is issues being dealt with by paper hearings. Uh, most of the big issues always have a public hearing that everybody has a chance to put your point of view so you see the whole picture and you're not you can you can avoid this intellectual co-opting and that applies by the way not only to the commissioners but the staff too the lobbying that goes on especially from the large company is incessant and constant and perfectly legitimate they want people to understand their, their industry their concerns and their their, their challenges but that's fine. But there are others who don't lobby, who also have uh, have challenges and concerns, which don't come forward except in a public forum, public to the media. So therefore, while you do listen to the lobbyists, you have to take it with a grain of salt and also always tell yourself this is only one side of the story. Interesting. You know, it's, I think it's fair to say that we've seen a pretty significant reversal of priorities under the current chair, under Ian Scott. Uh, Jean-Pierre Blay focused on consumers. He often talked about putting them at the center of their communication system. But I think there's a there's a sense of for many and myself included that Scott has unwound much of that. Uh, what's your view on, on what we've seen unfold over the last number of years? I think both of them fail to do what, what I mentioned before, sort of try to figure out something in the in the middle that appears to both. As I say, you need a healthy industry, no question about it, but you also have to make sure that consumers don't get shortchanged and that every that it's, the system is fair and you have to uh, find the right balance. And I think clearly this right balance has not been found in this. Suppose the wholesale decision we for broadband Wholesale decision we talked about is a perfect example of that. And uh, JP's did was probably focusing more on on consumers than on the industry. And I said it is a request requires a balance. You, know, you may want to make sure that you find the right solution, which a you can have a thriving, prosperous industry, but at the second the same same time you have consumers who f feel they're being fairly treated and are not, not feeling that the rates that they're paying unjust. You know, speaking of, of balance issues, uh, an issue that I don't think had the requisite balance either uh, is Bill C-10, the legislation to update or amend the Broadcasting Act. And, you know, I, I've obviously been really vocal on it, but interestingly, you have as well. Yeah. And in the Globe and Mail, you wrote that expecting the CRTC to do what Bill C-10 demands will result in years of process, appeals, and legal constitutional challenges that will suppress investment and harm Canada's creative sector. It's a, a pretty strong statement. Can, can you expand uh, on your views on the bill? Yeah. Well, let's first start at the beginning. I mean, we had the Yale report, which, by the way, I thought was uh, an opportunity missed rather than describing the whole world of the digital university of faith, the channelness, etc. It just focused on each of the three, three acts and what should be amended. It then made all sorts of recommendations on telecom and broadcasting. The government only picks up the broadcasting side. They haven't said a word about the telecom side. And what they have done is amend the Telecom Broadcasting Act but basically, they're looking at the internet through the broadcasting lens. And everything on the, uh, that is sound or video on the internet will now be broadcasting. I don't know where this idea comes from. I think it is totally wrong. It's not the way you should do it all. Broadcasting is a small part of the internet. 
what, whatever, 10, 15%. It is not the internet. And to look at the whole internet through broadcasting lens is wrong. But that's what they've done. And they've said, CRTC, here, we give you the power to treat everybody who puts sound or video on the internet as a broadcaster. All the powers that you had with regard to licensed broadcasters, which was on the, comes from the day when there was scarcity and therefore we, we had to limit it and we could put conditions on, you can put the same conditions on anybody who's, who's using the internet. Using the internet, or what's in, in the terminology of the act, uh, it's online undertaking, can be, can be required to be registered. You, CRTC, have the sole power to determine who can be registered. Once they have registered, you have the sole power to determine what they have to do, and you, have the, you can demand from them all the same things that you demand from licensed broadcasters. Now, the big difference here, of course, is that licensed broadcasters have to be all Canadian-owned and controlled. That doesn't apply to online undertakings. And secondly, the, if, there are all sorts of benefits that uh, you get from being a licensed broadcaster, which don't necessarily apply to a, to a registered undertaking. But we don't know what they're going to do. We don't know what they will, will require in terms of registration, who has to, has to register. And once registered, will they be exempted? CRTC can exempt them if they think it's not necessary to the implementation of the broadcasting policy, which is a pretty broad uh, criteria to apply. And this exemption, of course, can be by condition. And the CRTC has a long history of regulating through exemptions by saying, yes, you are exempt, provided you do A, B, and C. Or if you're not exempt, then here are the requirements. And what requirements will they be in terms of fees, in terms of, of, uh, of information furnishing, in terms of uh, contributions, in terms of production? They could insist on Canadian production, on the Canadian uh, exhibition of Canadian. We don't know. We know from the minister's statement that the whole idea of this bill was to capture the streamers. An idea which I think is perfectly legitimate. The streamers are here. They are acting like broadcasters, but they're not subject to the Broadcasting Act. So if you want to bring streamers, i.e. Netflix and Hulu and those people, uh, under the Broadcasting Act, you can do it. But to bring the whole world in, and they're here on the basis of the loosest criteria you can imagine, the CRTC can exempt, or if they don't exempt, they can impose on you what they seem is necessary. Well, I think that first of all, there will be a constitutional challenge as to whether online undertakings fall under the federal government's uh, jurisdiction. And because our original jurisdiction, it was based on radio waves. And of course, when you use talk about online, you don't necessarily use radio waves. Secondly, there will be a charter issue to what extent uh, are you uh, violating people's ability of free speech or be putting on the online as you do through your web or something like that, uh, through your web blog uh, programs or their ideas. Are you re uh, restricting their freedom of speech? Thirdly, question of when you put the imposed conditions, imposed conditions or exemptions, on what basis was it done? Is the criteria valid? Was it done uniformly or have you been discriminating? 
I mean, and lastly, we already have two streamers in Canada. We have Illico and Crave TV. What happens to them? Are you going to treat them the same way? What are you going to continue as they do right now under what's called uh, hybrid video on demand uh, uh, order? In which case, are you running afoul of the Canada-US-Mexico free trade agreement? And will there be retaliation? I mean, I can just see, first of all, a whole series of public hearings in determining on who should be registered, what should be exemption, what should be the conditions of exemption, what be, should be the conditions for the non-exempt, what should be the fees, the license, etc. What's the information? And I'm sure it will be fought everywhere on the uh, along the way, and it will. That's why I said it will involve years of litigation. And all of this, even before we talk about user-generated content, so. Yeah, no, that's a it's it's a compelling case. It's one I know that uh, you know echoes some of the same kinds of concerns that I've been raising. I'm glad to hear you raise them as well. One aspect to the bill, though, that of course you you'd have a, a unique perspective on, having served as chair, is the CRTC's capability of handling all of this. You know, we've talked about. You know the challenges. We were you know, really blunt and saying you know this was no way to regulate when we were looking at something like telecom and, and the wholesale broadband issue, which is of course right in their wheelhouse. You know, is the CRTC positioned to be even able to to assume the kind of responsibility that this bill envisions? Well, again, the the discretion given to the CRTC is so wide that it uh, depends on what they choose to do. I mean. That's a, if I had was still chairman and I was faced with this bill, then I would make my one number one objectivity to reduce the scope. First of all, who has to be registered? If you're not registered, then you don't fall under the uh, under the act. So that's the first threshold. You could either uh, suggest nobody has to uh, has to register unless, or you you say the threshold has to be on the basis of the number of viewers, of the number of revenue garnered, or whatever. But, but I mean, lower the threshold as much as... Oh, sorry, lower, higher, I don't know which is the example. Make sure as few people have to register as possible. Then secondly, when, they are, when, when you're registered, be very careful what you impose upon them in terms of, uh, of fees or obligations, etc. And then... I think you want want to say you're really interested in the big boys. You're really not interested in anybody else. So unless you have revenues over 100 million or you have more than 50,000 viewers or whatever, pick whatever, pick it, you don't fall. You're all exempt. So that basically, so make it manageable. So yet you're dealing with what actually was the goal from day one, dealing with the streamers and treat, treat them as much as possible like you are treating uh, Canadian licensed broadcasters. Yeah. Now, when you then come to discoverability, which has become such a big issue, etc., there's a big problem because if this discoverability is meant to be Canadian content, then you have to bring up, bring in a new definition of what's Canadian because the existing definitions which we use for telephone, for CRTC, and for the CMF, are all essentially a hidden employment uh, uh, regulations, trying to ensure as many people uh, as possible are employed, 
by, uh, by these production and then they have to be owned by a Canadian company and even the IP rights have, be, have to be owned by a Canadian company. Because that, of course, wouldn't fly at all. So if you really want to know, you have to produce some very generic concepts what is Canadian if in terms of discoverability, i.e., you know, was a shot in Canada? Is it based on a Canadian theme or a Canadian author? And does it have a Canadian director or something like that? But very broad, you know, to so truly capture what is Canadian rather than these, what I consider, consider basically disguised employment guidelines. Okay, so there are a lot of potential reforms. I guess, you know, why don't we wrap with this? It's, it's not clear whether or not this bill is going to become law we're headed towards the summertime and obviously it's you know really it's been stuck in committee for a number of weeks there's quite a number of paths still to go you know if the government does have to revisit the issue either because it uh, you know in my view comes to its senses and says yeah. we're going to start from scratch or because the bill dies you know is it your view that you know the kinds of things that you just described are the sorts of things that we should be leaving to the CRTC or is ultimately as we try to to, to develop coherent policy on this is this something that belongs in the legislation and in some ways that some of that some of that leeway some of that flexibility for the CRTC should be limited by the government itself in terms of the way the legislation rolls out well I think it's as, as what we traditionally we've done before this bill is basically define the the corners of the picture and then say dear CRTC you paint inside. And I think that you could say you could say online and uh, online undertakings are covered by the uh, by the uh, Broadcasting Act, provided they and then you put some criteria in terms of I think uh, minimum threshold in revenue and uh, and uh, viewers. And then secondly, you would say the CRTC can make regulations. Uh, regarding those registers, you know, yeah, but then you specify exactly what limit. You cannot treat them like uh, licensed broadcasters, but you want to ensure fairness to your industry. So obviously, you want them to contribute something to Canadian production funds. You want to, you want to uh, make sure that they pay uh, the taxes and pay the regulation fees, and that they furnish the CRTC with information that they need required to uh, uh, carry out this regulatory function. But so you itemize sort of three or four areas, and that's all. And then there's the CRTC here. You, within this framework, within this frame, you uh, come up with the appropriate policy. But that's not what's done at all. Here, basically, is a complete freedom was given to CRTC, the concept, uh, most vaguest kind of. Uh, references like anything that's necessary to implement Canadian broadcasting policy and no restrictions at all. And I think this is, uh, will lead to, as I suggested, my, I don't know how the CRTC is going to handle it, but whatever is, is happening, is, well, it's, that's not the way to, to legislate. As a legislator, Nobody expects you to do the detailed work. That's what the regulators are. But you have to give them a firm outline of these are the limits of what you can do, and this is what I want you to aim at. In this case, obviously, the streamers. Okay. Conrad, uh, I think it's a great way to end it. Uh, some real guidance, and perhaps uh, the government will be listening 
next time around, if there's an opportunity to rewrite as they should rewrite this legislation. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <music>